Welcome to GEMCAST, the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, where we discuss important topics in the care of older patients in the emergency department. I'm your host, Christina Shenby. GEMCAST is produced with the Geriatric ED Collaborative. You can find more episodes on any podcasting app, and you can find the show notes on the resources page of gedcollaborative.com. Welcome back to GEMCAST. I am so excited to be speaking with one of my long-term friends and mentors in the field of geriatric EM, whom I consider to be kind of one of the godfathers of geriatric EM. With tons of experience, tons of expertise, and has really helped define the field and define the priorities. And of course, it's none other than Dr. Chris Carpenter. Chris, welcome back. Thanks, Christina. Way to make me feel very old. Thank you. (laughs) Well, you know, it was something that I can only aspire to be. So it's been a while since we talked last on GEMCAST, and you've done a couple segments with us. And just in case you, listener, are new to GEMCAST, tell us, Chris, remind us where else people can hear more of what you have talked about. It sure has been a long time. Back in 2016, we talked about five ways to geriatricize your ED. And then back in May 2017, the last episode that I did, it was new geriatric ED accreditation, why you should care. And and a lot, a lot has happened in the world of geriatric EM since then. And so many stellar episodes of GEMCAST have captured the events and the leaders of this revolution in older adult emergency care. Yes, goodness. Yes, that reminds me. So 2017, we talked about geriatric EDs and why you might want to become a geriatric ED. And that was right at the start of the launch of ASEP's geriatric ED accreditation. And just today, we got an email that they have now hit the 500 mark in terms of sites that have been accredited or renewed or upgraded in terms of total volume of applications. So what a lot of change to go from zero to 500 in just five short years. Yeah, that's amazing. 500, that's a huge number. It may not seem huge, but 500 EDs, separate leaderships, different different organizations, different organizational hierarchies and priorities. And we convinced 500 of them that this is worthwhile to pursue. Absolutely. Well, since then, you have been busy as always. What have you been doing in the world of geriatric EM? Oh, where to begin? Okay. So at AAEM, we created the Geriatric Emergency Medicine Interest Group that has now morphed into a standing committee. The board of directors at AEM reendorses every year. I also joined the ASAP Clinical Policy Committee along with other geriatric EM folks like Richard Chi, and I've been working on that committee to infuse a geriatric EM perspective to each clinical policy, a perspective that really has been lacking in years past if you look at some of the older clinical policies. I also became editor for the American Board of Emergency Medicine's My EM Cert Key Advances section, again, trying to infuse some geriatric components into the recertification exam that we all have to take. And then along with Sean Liu at Harvard, I've been busy updating the 2014 geriatric ED guidelines. This time, we're using a great approach, unlike the last time that we did it 10 years ago. I also got pulled into doing the Silver Book, Quality Urgent Care for Older People, with colleagues from the British Geriatric Society. And then like you, I've been busy as a geriatric ED collaborative team member under the leadership of Ula Wong and Kevin Bice. I've also been co-investigator on the NIA-funded Geriatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network 1.0 and the Geriatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network 2.0 Advancing Dementia Care. And this last activity most closely pertains to what we're going to discuss today. So never a dull moment. (laughs) And 
Transitioning now into what I'd love to hear from you about today is this advancing dementia care and the gear 2.0. Tell us a little bit about what this is and then maybe why it's important to us as ER physicians. Yeah, the objective of gear 2.0 is to identify and prioritize research gaps in emergency care for persons living with dementia and their care partners. And we did this using a consensus conference of multi-level stakeholders and included patients and care partners and hospital leaders, geriatricians, neuropsychiatrists, psychologists, primary care, physical therapy, nurses, and policymakers. Next, Gear 2.0 provides pilot funding opportunities for transdisciplinary researchers to begin addressing the high-priority research. And we've got an R33 grant to fund two to three grants per year for the next three years. So it's not just ideas that are put out there. These are the priorities, but we fund investigators who want to pursue those priorities. So I like what you said there. So we've got this big issue, big health issue of more and more people in the U.S. around the world living with dementia and living longer. And how do we then even start to think about what what is important to research? One of the courses that I took when I was early in my career and looking at research and academic careers they talked about the first step to any research approach is first to just describe the swamp. So kind of describe what's out there. It may be messy, it may be unformulated, it may be unclear, and first just describing what's out there. So it sounds like you brought a lot of different stakeholders together, both emergency care, geriatrician, psychiatry, primary care. So first get everyone together in the same room virtually, and then walk us through the process that you use to start thinking about what are the important areas to research? Well, the first step was to obtain funding to make this a possibility, to, to bring these parties together, to have the infrastructure to do it. Serendipitously, R31 or R61, R33 mechanism just happened to come along as we were finishing up gear 1.0. And we had a critical mass to pursue a focus on ED care, persons living with dementia, which we hadn't tackled in gear 1.0. This funding mechanism was not always available. And in fact, some early in innovators in geriatric emergency medicine who were doing dementia research in the ED were told that this research is unethical, should not be done. Don't Not only will we not fund it, you shouldn't be doing it either. And, and so that obviously changed in the last 20 years. So we got a funding mechanism in place. The next step was to identify those key stakeholders to engage in this year-long exercise of meetings in order to make a laundry list of potential research priorities for persons living with dementia We've tended to focus on dementia detection, communication and decision-making with those persons and their care partners, best practices for the ED management of these patients, and then care transitions from the ED to home, from the ED to long-term care facilities, or from the ED to the hospital. And then we, we put together an oversight committee who are leading dementia researchers from across the U.S. and, importantly, a health equity advisory board, patients who are living with this condition and their family members across the spectrum of gender and ethnic distributions so that we got voices heard from different communities. And, and then Gear 2.0 was able to recruit a wide array of perspectives that included all these folks that we talked about before, psychology and neurologists, pharmacists, et cetera. And, and so it's not just EM perspectives that we're hearing. So let me pause there. I was interested by what you had to say regarding the ethics of doing research in this population and how that had 
previously been completely blocked. And this is a challenge with geriatric research in general, that often older patients are excluded from research studies for various reasons, but part of it is because of the complexity and nuance that it adds when you have to obtain informed consent from somebody who may have dementia. How do you think about that? Well, I think that it's a it's a lesson learned. We learn so many lessons in life about success and failure and how you make the most of those situations. My personal situation was I had been awarded a Janigan and uh, pursued that with developing clinical decision roles for abdominal pain in the ED. And my looking at the Beeson, which was the next step where I was trying to get to K-level funding, I was going to pursue assessment of dementia in the ED and then a randomized trial in the ED of, of getting those patients for more formal testing through our Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. And my first submission got scored pretty competitively. And I took a couple of years, two, two calendar years, to very thoroughly go through each of the criticisms from that first scored submission, resubmitted to the Beeson, and wasn't even scored the second time. That included things like you don't have enough publications in this field. So I published 30 papers, three zero papers in the field. And that's what I'm talking about, spending two years to methodically go through those criticisms. And the reason that it got triaged on the second pass was because it was a completely different study section. And one of the members of that study section had said, nobody should be doing dementia research in the ED. You don't have a diagnostic test. You, you could scare a lot of folks with the screening tools and they're, they're having a bad day anyway. They're sick, they're injured. They are not going to test well cognitively and you can't really consent them. They're using kind of circular logic. If you if you don't know they have dementia, how can you consent them? But how can you consent mm. them if you know they have dementia? And so lesson learned. I should have not put all my eggs in one basket, but I also should have thought about that you need to justify to skeptics that this research is possible in the ED. There are ethical ways to recruit these patients to consent them using things like subject assent and care partner assent. Wow, that's a whole ethical and philosophical thing to consider. And personally, of course, I think that there is a big role for dementia-related research in the ED, in part because a fair amount of the care of older patients with dementia takes place in the ED. And so if we're only researching their care in the clinical setting or in the inpatient setting, then we're missing the opportunity to improve their care in the ED context. So going back to what you mentioned in terms of looking at the landscape to say, what are the big buckets of areas that are priorities or gaps in our knowledge? And you mentioned detecting dementia. So patients who may come in and have undiagnosed dementia. These I find are not infrequently the patients who maybe live far away from their family members and the daughter flies in for Thanksgiving and then notices that, you know, mom or aunt or grandma isn't quite acting the same. And to them, it seems like an acute change, even though it's been happening slowly. And so they bring the patient to the ED. So dementia detection, and then how do we communicate and make decisions? What are our best practices? And, and then care transitions. So helping them get out of the ED to a care place or care context, whether that's a nursing facility, assisted living, or maybe their home with home health or home services. So where did you go from there with those priorities? Well, the next step was to create four work groups based upon those four domains that you just spoke about, and then brainstorm, lots of brainstorming about potential research questions among those four groups. 
And each group ultimately identified anywhere from 10 to 20 questions. And then the entire team narrowed those down to the top two for each of the domains. So top two in detection, top two in communication, et cetera. Then we had medical librarians from four institutions who collaborated to create and then peer review search strategies for scoping reviews for each of these groups. So each of those two questions had a scope interview that went along with it. And those scope interviews then served as the basis for presentation and debate at a virtual consensus conference with 53 participants, which occurred during the peak of COVID-19. That's why we had to do it virtually. We had planned in person. The consensus conference voting then identified the top five priorities for each domain. Well, anytime you get 53 people in a room, virtually or otherwise, you're going to have a whole lot of different ideas and opinions and individual priorities. So where was there agreement or where was there maybe disagreement on what those priorities were? There was generally consensus among big themes, but there were some interesting diversities of opinions. And we've got open access papers that we'll share in the show notes for this that do differentiate the voting for the different types of stakeholders. But for example, patients and care partners were sometimes impatient about laying the foundation for change because they wish to see Gear 2.0 lead to change in the status quo of care delivery right now. And as you know, now translation, it takes 17 years for 40% of the evidence to get to the bedside. And we first had to understand what we know right now. And, and then do our clinicians believe that? Do, do they believe this is the truth? Is it applicable to their populations? Are they able to do this in their ED? There's a series of things that have to happen to move from what we know to what we do, but patients, they, they want things to be changed right now. And accordingly, their voting prioritized immediate practice change. For example, for the communication and decision-making priorities, patients prioritized engaging the entire ED care team, the social workers, nurses, techs, physicians, pharmacists, in communication enhancement education. Well, those who work in the ED were uncertain, what would we be teaching them? Since we know things like teach back, don't necessarily work. So what do we teach them to do if we don't know what works? And uh, so we prioritize the physician teams, um, identifying valid and reliable outcomes of effective communication before we embark on teaching. So we're not just teaching for the sake of teaching and wasting time and resources. You mentioned having this big team and then librarians at four different institutions looking through what we already know. If you could come up with some of the key points, for example, the literature that is out there on dementia care in the ED, what do we already know? Well, we synthesized that in the scope reviews. And again, we'll have open access to those at the end of this, these show notes. But we, we showed that there's a lot that we don't know about communication, for example. Guess how many studies that were assessing communication with persons living with dementia in the ED setting, ED-based? Five. Zero. Wow. <laughs> zero studies. So we have zero <laughs> studies upon which to build a foundation. We do have some studies from nursing homes. We have some um, focus work groups of nurses in nursing homes. We have some focus groups of patients who have been through the ED and, and what they remember about the communication with nurses and physicians. We don't really have any prospective research assessing different communication strategies in the ED of persons living with dementia. We don't have any outcomes-based analyses showing that in, in persons living with dementia or their care partners, these are the communication strategies that worked, or these are the outcomes of any communication strategies. So there's a real positive evidence for that particular domain. And, and that was pretty similar across the different domains. And, and detection, I'd say we had the richest body of research because we've got a couple dozen instruments that have been tested for screening for dementia in the ED. But I will say with those, this gets a little, little bit technical, but for accuracy instruments, 
we tend to stop research when we get to sensitivity and specificity. We don't really look at the impact of that screening. And there's a hierarchy of evidence for diagnostics doesn't exist for dementia research. We don't really know that, yes, we use this instrument that has the best accuracy, but does that change outcomes in any way that we can measure for this population? So we don't know that yet. We only we know, okay, you can use this instrument. It's 75% sensitive, 85% specific, but then why does it matter? Why would I take my time in the ER to do it if it's not going to impact the patient or impact my care? Yeah. Does it identify a subset of patients with dementia or possible dementia that we didn't identify before? Does that new subset that we now identify with this instrument, is there anything that we can do for that population with that information that, that benefits any outcome? Even if the outcome is it helps them to stay in the ED 10 minutes less. That, I mean, that's an outcome that nobody cares about, right? But it's something <laughs> we could measure. And then the next level would be, does it allow us to make sure that that patient has better quality of life in the days and weeks following that ED visit? That's a patient-centered outcome. We don't have any of that information. All we know for some of these instruments is the accuracy. And I wonder if this paucity of research could in part maybe be connected to that mindset you mentioned at the start that, oh, we cannot do research with patients who have dementia in the ED because of the barriers. That's certainly an obstacle to getting this research done. Yes. Well, so lots of great things coming from this, and it sounds like funding, great minds, people working hard, identified priorities. How do you see this potentially changing our practice in the next five to 10 years? I'm not sure that it can change our practice in five to 10 years, Christina. You know that it takes 17 years for 14% of the evidence to trickle down. We've, since we have almost zero evidence to begin with, I think we first have to generate the evidence, and that is a lot of work. We have to get clinically oriented health outcomes researchers doing this research, which is why we have those funding mechanisms in place through Gear 2.0. And it's going to take a lot of work to generate ideas. Let's test this, this intervention. Let's test this process of dealing with these patients. Let's look at these outcomes, and, and let's assess those against patient-reported outcomes that matter. And some of those will, will pan out. Some of them will work. And then we need to make sure they work other places, that, that it doesn't just work at UNC, that it works across all the EDs in the country. And then, then we need to implement those. We need to figure out a way to get that information into the hands of the clinicians everywhere in, in, in ways that they can use it. That all takes time. I think that the biggest outcome right now is going to be realizing that we don't have a lot of data upon which to build protocols and, and guidelines right now. And we need a lot more researchers in this field doing research, testing different interventions and theories and approaches. And then we'll start to have some, some substance upon which to build a foundation for interventions that will change patient outcomes and ED operations worldwide. Well, so this is a long game. That's 17 years for 14%. And I know there's plenty of people, yourself included, and others working to accelerate that or at least reduce that leaky pipeline of evidence to practice. But I'm excited to see what's coming down the pipeline in terms of at least describing the swamp, understanding what we do know, understanding what our gaps are and where the important areas are to go next for patient-centered outcomes and for improving care for our older patients. Anything else you want to leave our listeners with? Well, I think it's it'll be illuminating for the folks to, to look at the list of research priorities that we generated, and we hopefully can paste those into the notes at the bottom so you can see the, the brainstorming that occurred and the consensus that was reached among the different groups. And I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned from this whole experience is, you know, I'm currently in Missouri in the process of moving to Minnesota to work at Mayo Clinic. But in Missouri, Mark Twain had once said that it ain't 
what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that ain't so. And my geriatrician colleagues, my neuropsychiatry colleagues, and my EM colleagues and nurses, we have this belief about persons living with dementia, that we recognize it when we see it, that we know how to manage pain in these patients. We know how to manage behavioral disturbances. And when you actually look at the science, show me the data that giving held all to this patient with confusion and disturbed behavior with dementia, that it actually improves outcomes. It's not there. It isn't there. It's not there in the nursing home setting. It's not there in the geriatric wards. It's not there in the ED setting. So I think that for me, the lesson learned is there's a lot of work ahead, but there's a world of opportunity for uh, researchers to start to find truth in, in how we deal with these patients. Well, thank you very much for being on GEMCAST. And I know you will be a fantastic asset and bring a lot of experience to Mayo Clinic. So they are fortunate to have you working with them. And hopefully for our listeners through listening, you've learned part of just the process of how do you approach a big problem like this? How do you break it down? How do you engage the right stakeholders? How do you look at what's out there and then come up with what you need to focus on thinking with that 17 years in the future. It's not going to happen tomorrow. And hopefully you have learned some things that maybe you thought you knew that ain't so. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks, Christina. Thank you for listening to this episode of GEMcast. You can connect with me on Twitter with the handle at GEMpodcast. You can also navigate over to gedcollaborative.com for more resources on the care of older patients.